Well, during the remainder of our time together, we want to begin an important new message series that will uh, run the majority of the summer as we tackle one of the most intriguing books of the Bible. It's a book entitled Ecclesiastes. So if you have a Bible, you can try to find that. It's somewhere in the Old Testament. I'll give you a hint, okay? It's after Psalms, and that's a big book. So if you find Psalms or if you have a Bible app, you can follow along or in the message notes. Now, this is actually a series of messages we've wanted to do for a couple of years. Uh, We always whiteboard ideas and topics and books of the Bible and subject matter and, and Ecclesiastes has popped up on the whiteboard the last two or three years, uh, but we just never, it just never seemed to fit. And this summer, as we were looking for summer plans, it just seemed like the time was right to tackle this great book. So let's jump in. First of all, how do you make sense of this bizarre name, Ecclesiastes? What does that mean? So in your notes, in the, in the message insert, you'll find just the first observation is the name, author, and theme. We just want to try to get our bearings, what's going on in this book. Well, the name, uh, Ecclesiastes, is actually the Greek title, which means assembly. Assembly. It's very similar to another Greek word that we have maybe become familiar with in the New Testament portion of the Bible, ecclesia, which is translated the called out ones or the church. So interestingly, before Jesus ever came to the earth, there's a book in the Bible called the church, if you will, in a sense. It's the assembly. And interestingly, the Hebrew title for this book is Kohelet, which is, by the way, you're not going to be quizzed on any of this, but just in case you're interested, the Hebrew name is Kohelet, which is the term the author uses to describe himself as it is translated in most English Bibles as the teacher. So who's the author? Well, for the most part, he remains anonymous, referring to himself simply as the teacher. Traditionally, he's been understood as Solomon, the son of David. There are some theories out there that Ecclesiastes was actually written by a later king in Jerusalem. But for my study and for my examination and reading the book, I personally believe it was Solomon. And this will be my assumption as we go through this series. Now, to understand this theme of this book, we only have to read the first two verses, which read this way. In Ecclesiastes 1, verse 1, the word of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Now, some of you are discouraged right now, okay? And maybe at first glance, by reading this introduction, we would come to the conclusion that this is a pessimistic book pointing out the meaninglessness of life. And some have read Ecclesiastes this way. Maybe some of you have even come across this book in your reading of the Bible, and you read those first two verses, and you think, I don't need this, and and you went on to another book of the Bible. But I think as we dig into this word that's translated meaningless, we find a much more optimistic theme, or at least a realistic way to read uh, this book. The word translated meaningless can, in this translation can also be translated breath, 
vapor, mist, or vanity. As we see how this word is used elsewhere in the Bible, we begin to see more clearly the theme of this book is that life is fleeting. Life is hard to comprehend. Interesting, the, the, the actual Hebrew word is this word, Hebel. It's very similar to a name of a biblical character, a guy named Abel. Do you remember Abel? Okay, some of you remember Abel, some of you go, I don't remember Abel. Okay, Abel had a very short-term spotlight in the Bible. He was the second son of Adam and Eve, but he was killed by his older brother. His life was short-lived. His time on earth was but a mist. And just as we get to know him in Genesis, he's gone, puff. Listen to how the paraphrased Message Bible tries to get at this word when it reads this way. Smoke, nothing but smoke. And that's the name of our title of our message today. Nothing but smoke. There's nothing to anything. It's all smoke. Now, before you check out and think, well, this just still sounds depressing, realize over the course of this message series, and even today, we're going to examine some verses in this book that remind us to enjoy life. Sometimes they're even described as the joy passages in Ecclesiastes. So what can we make of this theme? Well, yes, life is short. But let's make sure in the midst of this brief and sometimes uncertain life, that we learn how to truly enjoy life and how to find inner, inner contentment. Now, the timing of this message series seems perfect for me personally. You see, this past week, I had another birthday. And I've told some of you that I was turning 40. (laughs) But you responded that way when I said it before. So I need to be honest that my age number is slightly higher than 40, but it ends in a zero. And so here... I am, as my family treated me to a surprise birthday party a few days before my birthday, and obviously the store was out of 50s paraphernalia, so my family improvised the best they could at this surprise party. Now, as I look at that number, that's a big number. But instead of getting down about how fleeting life is, I've decided to take a different outlook. I want to embrace the life that God's given me. And I want to make the most of the rest of my life and determine to make this next phase of my life the very best part of it. Yes, life is short. But in the midst of this life, which is like smoke, mist, or vapor, let's realize that God longs to give us meaning He longs to give us joy. So the theme of Ecclesiastes, I believe, is in a realistic view of life. Yes, it's truly fleeting. And yet in the midst of this short life that we have on earth, we can find true meaning. And in the process of finding that deeper meaning for life that God created us for, we can find inner joy and peace. So let's keep reading this book. 
the teacher, which I believe to be Solomon, begins with a description that I think is powerful. In fact, it's poetic. As he introduces this book and paints a portrait of the world as it appears. So let's read it together. I'm just going to read through it. I think it speaks for itself. Verse 3. What do people get out of, get for all their hard work under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth never changes. The sun rises and the sun sets, then hurries around to rise again. The wind blows south and then turns north. Around and around it goes, blowing in circles. Rivers run into the sea, but the sea is never full. Then the water returns again to the rivers and flows out again to the sea. Everything is wearisome beyond description. No matter how much we see, we are never satisfied. No matter how much we hear, we are not content. History merely repeats itself. It has all been done before. Nothing under the sun is truly new. Sometimes people say, here's something new, but actually it's old. Nothing is ever truly new. We don't remember what happened in the past, and in future generations, no one will remember what we are doing now. It is in this worldview that is in front of us, Solomon begins his search. And he wants to imagine in the midst of this, in the midst of what could appear meaningless, what is God's purpose in all this? And what should I latch onto as the meaning for my life? As we read this book, we'll in many ways be reading Solomon's journal as he tries many different things in life to find meaning, as he tries to personally grasp in this process and comprehend our last point here, and then we're going to develop it a little bit, the search for a purpose in life. This is what Solomon wrote about that. In verse 12, he says, I, the teacher, was king over Israel and Jerusalem. I applied my mind to study and explore all by wisdom all that is done under the heavens. What a heavy burden God has laid on mankind. I've seen all the things that are done under the sun. All of them are meaningless, a chasing after the wind. That's a phrase that he uses throughout this book as he journals his pursuit of searching for meaning. In other words, Solomon's saying as he studied life, he, he seems to be like just on the brink of discovering what life's all about, and then there's this puff of wind, and it just seems to blow beyond his grasp. It's like chasing after wind. Maybe you can relate to that. I can. I'm, I'm, some of you might know this about me. I've, I've maybe shared this before, but I'm I'm a receipt keeper. You know, I'm one of those people that I like to know where my money goes that I'm spending. And so uh, my wife thinks I'm a little crazy, but I keep receipts on everything because I can track where our spending is, and that's just helped us through the years. But so typically when I go into the store and they say, do you want the receipt? I say, yes, yeah, of course, who wouldn't? And uh, so I get the receipt, 
But sometimes because, you know, you got a couple bags and you're trying to juggle that, I've more than once, I've walked out in the parking lot and dropped the receipt as I'm trying to get the keys out of my car. And if you ever see me do this around town, please don't laugh too loud. But I have found myself more than once going through the parking lot trying to trying to catch the receipt. Have you ever done that? And it's like, I'm just about ready to step on it, and then wind or car drives by and blows it away. And so that's what I picture in my mind. Solomon says it's like chasing after wind. Now, throughout this series, we're going to dig into the different topics that Solomon pursued as possible meaning for life. Today, we're just going to throw at you, just in this introduction, just a glimpse of what we're going to be talking about in the weeks to come. This is going to be a very practical series, and we hope you'll be coming back and be inviting others to join us as we listen to the guy that was described as the wisest man that had lived up to that point. And of course, I think probably besides Jesus, when he walked on the earth, he was the wisest man. So let's catch a glimpse of some of the topics that will be discussed in future weeks. First, he mentions the, if you're taking notes, the futility of wisdom. The futility of wisdom. This is what he wrote about that in verse 16. He says, I said to myself, look, I've increased in wisdom more than anyone who's ruled over Jerusalem before me. I've experienced much of wisdom and knowledge. Then I applied myself to the understanding of wisdom and also of madness and folly. But I learned that this too is a chasing after the wind. For with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Now for the person who says, I'm going to find purpose in life in learning. I want the satisfaction to be an expert in my field. To be more informed, more well-read, more learned, and more degreed than anybody else that I come in contact. Now, if you've ever thought that way, or if you've ever approached life that way, for those of you who've desired to be the smartest girl or the smartest guy in the room, what's the problem with that? There's always someone that enters the room that's a little bit smarter or know something that you don't know. Maybe it's James from Jeopardy. Okay, I don't know. And I don't know how many of you have been watching this guy, but he's incredible. I mean, I don't get to watch Jeopardy every day, but I do like to watch it. But, but I, I find myself at night checking on, online, did he win again? Okay, and I think he's probably going to break the record of all-time earnings probably tomorrow, okay? So that's what well, I'm making an advertisement for Jeopardy, Okay. I like Jeopardy. In fact, my children, for my birthday celebration, they came up with a Jeopardy game. All questions about me. And it was it was really humbling, okay? It was questions like sermon series as I've done, and I forgot some of them. It was it was embarrassing. Uh, Also, dad sayings, you know, my kids enjoyed that. But those were some of the categories that were there, and I barely, barely won because I guessed on the final Jeopardy question. You know, just a reminder that even when it's about me, I struggle 
to come up with the answers. You see, in verse 18, Solomon says, with much wisdom comes much sorrow. The more knowledge, the more grief. Why? Well, what I've learned in my life, the more I learn, the more I realize how little I really know. It's humbling. When I went into ministry and was newly married at age 24, 25 years old, I thought I had relationships and ministry all figured out. Fast forward 36 years later, I feel like I'm just beginning to learn what it means to be a good husband. I feel like I'm just beginning to learn what this ministry thing is all about. That's why I want to continue to serve for years and years because I just feel like I'm beginning to figure out what God has called me to in ministry. But it's humbling. With more knowledge comes more grief. Well, Solomon then turns to the futility of pleasure. Listen to what he says in Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1. He says, I said to myself, come on, let's try pleasure. Let's look for the good things in life. But I found that this too was meaningless. So I said, laughter is silly. What good does it do to seek pleasure? After much thought, I decided to cheer myself with wine. And while still seeking wisdom, I clutched at foolishness. In this way, I tried to experience the only happiness most people find during their brief life in this world. Solomon said, I tried pleasure next. After wisdom and after I realized it was just burdensome to try to always be the smartest guy in the room, he says, I tried pleasure. Why are certain things so tempting in our lives? Why are certain things so tempting in my life? Why are certain things so tempting in your life? Because they're pleasurable. They're pleasurable. And yet after that short-lived pleasure comes to an end, we then often find ourselves very unfulfilled. And then we begin to realize that seeking pleasure is not the reason that we are called, the reason we were created. It's not, not the meaning for life. In many ways, temptation of pleasure is like my experience growing up as a kid. Every year, our family would go to the county fair. The county fairgrounds wasn't too far from our home, and so every year that was part of our annual routine. And every year, my parents would give us kids just a limited number of dollars to go spend. And being more of that trying to be thoughtful and logical kid, even as a kid, I would walk around the fair and try to figure out how I was going to spend my money because I knew it was limited. And, you know, figure out which rides I wanted to take and which games maybe I could win and which, which treats looked the best. And every year, I succumbed to the temptation of cotton candy. Because it looks so good, this big pink blob, this big blue blob, it looks like, man, that's going to be really good. That's going to fill me up. But what's the problem with cotton candy? It just kind of, it just dissolves in your mouth. And every year I'd go, that didn't fill me up. That was a bad choice. But you know, sometimes we're that way with temptation, aren't we? And we go, why did I do that? 
There's no fulfillment in that pleasure. Sure, it was pleasure, but it was short-lived. Solomon goes on and says, I tried laughter, but after a while, you know, the comedy clubs just weren't doing it for him. Watching the repeats of Seinfeld, The Office, or now Big Bang Theory, it's just after a while, these silly jokes on sitcoms, all they're just silly. So Solomon says he turned to wine, and, and yet he reflects how sad that the buzz of alcohol is the only happiness most people find during their brief life. Then Solomon turns to the futility of accomplishments. In Ecclesiastes 2, verse 4, he says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I, I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. Solomon says, at this period of my life, I was pursuing projects. I mean, his favorite shows, if he'd lived now, would be the, this old house, Fixer Upper, or Property Brothers. He was into home improvement and gardening and crafts and woodworking. Now, is Solomon saying that these things are bad? No, and I'm not saying these things are bad. But let's be honest with us, that we can accomplish that project and it can feel great for a moment, maybe even for a short season of time, but is there real lasting fulfillment? Whether it's an accomplishment at work or an accomplishment at home, Solomon said there's still a futility in thinking that's the meaning of life. In fact, I should have included in your message notes verse 11 when he wrote, but as I looked at everything I'd worked so hard to accomplish, it was all so meaningless, like chasing the wind. There was nothing really worthwhile anywhere. You see, we need to make sure that we're not just immersed in projects and seeking accomplishments that we lose sight of what the real meaning of life is all about. And let's make sure as a church that we don't simply get caught up in projects, programs, or even future phases of this building and forget the most important thing is loving God and loving people. Now, I don't think that means we don't tackle projects. In fact, this summer, we're going to tackle a project of building a playground that many of you have generously given to. Maybe you've seen the, the equipment for the playground, the materials for the playground showed up this week. And so we're excited about that, and we'll be talking more about that. But, but we're not just trying to be the best playground builders in town. That's not our goal. We said from the very beginning, this, this playground on our property between us and the Y will be a bridge to build to people so that we can share about Jesus and why he's the hope that we want them to cling to. One of the many things I appreciate about Lifeline as I've gone on a number of mission trips with them is they've done all kinds of good things. You know, they've, they've uh, built building, they built houses, they've built medical clinics, they've uh, distributed food, uh, we've helped pack, they've empowered people in third world countries to, to learn trades and have a means of income, and yet they insist on all the people that go on these mission trips to always point people back when you're giving them a food package or a gift for a child. But this comes from God. And this is just a reminder that Jesus loves you. Their emphasis is not on projects, although they've done some great ones, but it's on the people they're serving. And as a church, we never want to lose sight of that. 
I felt like last week we got a glimpse of the impact we can have as a church on people. As we had Baptism Sunday and we had six people baptized into Christ. And it was a joy to see person after person respond and be baptized. And I shared last week, we have water ready every weekend. So if you weren't here last week and you say, I'd like to make that decision, let us know. Put it on the communication card. Grab me in the lobby afterwards. We'd be glad to assist you even today to be baptized. But we had a, a junior high girl. We had a girl that finished junior high going into high school that was baptized. We had a high school graduate that was baptized. We had a, a, a husband, a wife baptized, and that wife's mother baptized. That was really awesome. It was great to see God working and reaching people through this church. That's what we want to make sure that we keep as our focus to love God and to love people, to invest in the souls of others. And with that said, Solomon shares in his journal one more area as we close out, the futility of work. Ecclesiastes 2 verse 18 says, I came to hate all my work, hard work here on earth, for I must leave to others everything I've earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish, yet they will control everything. I've gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of my hard work in this world. Now, we're just getting started. He's going to come to a conclusion that, that I hope will rock you and your world and remind you what life is really all about. In fact, we get a glimpse of that even at the end of this opening section. Solomon concludes with these words in verse 24. It's not in your notes, but it's in the Bible. So I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from him? God gives wisdom, knowledge, and joy to those who please him. Do you want real joy? Do you really want real wisdom for life? Do you want real peace? Then look to God. And during this book, we're going to learn that there's great meaning in understanding how awesome God is and how much He loves us and wants a relationship with us. And as we look to Him for meaning and purpose, in Him we can find real lasting joy and contentment. Now, you might not be convinced yet, We'll keep coming back this summer because we believe that the teachings of this book will convince you that God is the answer for your life. If you're convinced, then who can you invite so that they'll be convinced as well? And yet we have to acknowledge as we read this fantastic book that was written a thousand years before Jesus walked the earth, that it's in his search of trying to find meaning for life that we have an advantage over him. You see, sometimes when we read these Old Testament books, I'm not sure that some of them had a real sense and confidence that life was anything beyond what you see from cradle to grave. In fact, you kind of sense that. Solomon's struggling, you're like, man, life's short. And wow, we have a great advantage over this son of David Solomon, 
because we've seen in another son of David, Jesus of Nazareth, the depth of God's love. And we've seen not only his love and his sacrifice that he was willing to go to the cross for for us to show us how much he loved us, how much he longs to forgive us and redeem us, but because he had victory over death, we are continually reminded that the end of life is not found in this life, that that, that life goes beyond the grave. And so we're to live in this world realizing that we've been invited to an eternal relationship with God through Jesus. Now, that's an advantage we have over Solomon. And it's an advantage that we need to make sure we lean into. I tell you what, when I I reflect on how short life is, my recent birthday, I think, man, if I wasn't a Christian, I'd be so depressed. But the truth of it is, the next 10, 20, 30, if I can live to be 140 years, is just practice for worshiping God and praising God forever in heaven. Let's make sure that we're making the most of this life so that we're prepared for the next. Let's thank God that Jesus has made the preparation for us by dying on the cross for us. As we take communion every week, we're reminded what Jesus did to prepare us and to prepare a place for us so we could have this eternal life with God. Think about that, remember that, reflect on that, and cherish that during this time of communion. Let's pray together. Dear God, we thank you. What a great God you are. We thank you for how rich scripture is. We thank you for this book of Ecclesiastes and the wisdom we can gain from it. And yet, Father, we're thankful that we live on this side of the cross and this side of the empty tomb because we know that this life is not the end, that death is not the end because Jesus is overcome. Thank you for that, Father. Help us just cherish the relationship we can have with you because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. Help us reflect on that now as we take the bread, as we take the cup, as we remember the preparation that Jesus has made for us. It's in his name we pray, amen.